You're listening to the Life Center Church Podcast. The disciples asked Jesus, Why do you speak to the people in parables? Jesus replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have in abundance. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear. Blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. So Isaiah 5, verse 1 and 2, says this, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you for entertaining uh, me in that. He opened his eyes. And with the light of dawn, as he searched the world around him, he breathed deep his first breath. And out a divine sense of peace. A light so bright came shining through the trees. And as he lifted his hand to guard his eyes from the mere splendor, there stood the king. He knew him deeply, immediately. This was The one who breathed, the king, looked kindly at him and called his name Adam. This is the God of the garden, and this is the God who speaks to us today. We're going to spend a lot of time in Matthew um, 21, and I just want to... uh, Start out by reading the the first couple verses of Matthew 21, verses 33 and 34. And it says this. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, He sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Sounds familiar, right? There was a master who owned a vineyard. That master tended to the vineyard, built it up, put a watchtower in the middle of it, and then he leased it to the tenants. And this brings us to my first point. God owns it all. You know, as I was reading through this parable, I kept seeing something that was different 
to a lot of the other parables that we've heard so far. In a lot of ways, other parallels have, or other parables have paralleled our life by letting us take ownership of the mission that Jesus had. But I want you to bring your attention to this, that this morning, unlike those parables, we do not have ownership in this aspect of owning the vineyard. This vineyard is God's and God's alone, okay? It says that he had the vineyard. It rested on a fertile hill. He built it, and then he did what? He leased it. When you lease something, you don't relinquish ownership to it. You purely give it so that someone else can care for it for a little while. You see, we do care for his vineyard as tenants, but we do not own it. And I think Jesus starts with this point because he wants us to see you do not own this vineyard that I'm about to tell you about. And you see a lot of the people, a lot of the Pharisees, a lot of the scribes, a lot of the elders had already missed it at this point. They thought they owned the vineyard. So it is rightful for Jesus to remind them who owns it. Adam was so delighted to do the work of the king, and especially since the king made for him a wife. Together, the two of them were called to tend the garden, name animals, multiply their offspring, eat of all that was given, except that is from one tree. This tree had fruit that would end their communion with the king and would bring death into their world. So God warned them, do not eat of it. We know that even in the Ten Commandments, we have a stark warning. Do not make for yourself any other gods. There is one God. There is one king. And as we know in this narrative, in the garden, they broke that communion because they thought they could be their own. They wanted to decide for themselves what was good and what was bad, what was right to do and what was right not to do. So I want to remind you again, God owns it all. Let's look real quickly to verse 34. Verse 34, as I read before, says, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. We see that it is his fruit. That not only is the vineyard his, not only is the world his, as we see in Genesis, not only are the servants his, but that which grows in the vineyard, because he owns it, belongs to him. So the tenants don't even have the right to say, look at the fruit that I grew. Now they get to enjoy the glory of that fruit. And we'll get to that in a little bit later. 
but it's God's. We see, Jesus says plainly, that the vineyard is his. He dug it out. He made it come into existence. And then, therefore, the fruit that grows from it also belongs to him. Make no mistake this morning. No matter where you are, where you're sitting, in your home, in a car, in your pajamas, God owns it all. He owns the car. He owns the house. He owns the pajamas. He owns the food you ate this morning. He owns it all. And why am I stressing this so much? Because I believe with all my heart that Jesus wants us to see this morning, the heart of the matter begins here. We cannot lose sight of the God who owns it all. My second point this morning is that God calls his tenants. Okay? The, uh, if you notice in the story, the uh, tenants don't just happen upon the vineyard. Uh, I'll read for you so you get a little bit of a picture here. It says in 33 that he leased it to tenants, meaning there was a business transaction, if you will. Not necessarily with money, but there was a transfer of responsibility. I want you to take care of my vineyard. So these tenants um, didn't just pop out of nowhere. These tenants were called and purposefully given the vineyard. And so this morning, I want you to realize God doesn't just own it all. But he also makes people take care of what he owns with a purpose. There isn't just happenstance. The world didn't just pop out of nowhere and we out of sludge became walking around and I think I'll take ownership of this now and I'll care for it. No, there was a purpose. God called his tenants. And where did he first call his tenants? Well, we find that in my narrative. He made Adam. He made Eve. He made them in his image, and he told them to tend the garden. It started there in the garden, and it doesn't end there. We know that he called Moses. He called Abraham. He called Isaac, Jacob, all the way down, David, John the Baptist, Jesus, you, me, we have been called by name to tend his garden. Jesus made clear who owned this vineyard, and now he brings our attention to the tenants. These tenants had a job to do, and they did a great job. That was up until the harvest. And so I want to bring your attention to um, what I believe is that historical this present day, uh, biblical day, and future implications of this passage here with God calling his tenants. We see that historic Israel, which was uh, the vineyard in, in Isaiah, the vineyard that Isaiah talked about was Israel, uh, a nation called by God, dug out and set onto the earth for a reason, that historical Israel was to keep and tend Israel 
the world. They were to be uh, blessings to the nations. Um, and so in the gospel narrative, and that's kind of the word I'm going to use for the biblical time, in the gospel time um, and in the bigger narrative, we see that humanity was to keep and tend the world. So um, Adam and Eve were, were there to tend the, the greater garden, and then there was Israel who was to tend to um, the vineyard, and then I want to bring to light this morning that those who are called by our name and have been saved are to tend to the church. Um, and you may ask, well, wait a second, wasn't it just the leaders of Israel that were supposed to tend to Israel? No, because Israel was a nation made up of a lot of people who got those leaders in trouble all the time. Um, if you remember, a lot of people didn't make it into the promised land uh, in Deuteronomy because they all decided not to go forward even though leaders told them, let's go take this land. So no, Jesus isn't just talking about leaders when he's talking about tenants. He's talking about all of us. Remember, he's talking to the people. And so when it comes to the church, it is not just the leaders of the church that are to tend. Yes, we are extra responsibility. We have to make sure that people tend to the church properly as oversight. But it doesn't stop with the leaders. It actually has a lot to do with the whole. We are all tenants of this garden, and we are to care for it. Which up until this point, mind you, they did a great job. It says in 34 that when the season drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. So I believe that there was fruit. I believe that the season drew near, the tenants tended well, and there was fruit. We'll see why I believe that in a little bit. But my third point to you this morning is the tenants have a better plan. So a lot of times... In our biblical narrative, we see that humanity fails to see God as the owner of all things and likes to take control of it. Am I right? We do it all the time. And I think this speaks to us even in today. In the midst of these trials, in the midst of being separated from one another, in the midst of all of the confusion, what is it that people are afraid of the most? I truly believe that at the heart of the matter, it's fear of losing control. We had our lives perfectly tidy. We had perfect control over everything in our life. We had our work that we went to. Nine to five, I get off. Maybe I grab a coffee, I get home, I be with my family, play with my children, I go to sleep, I wake up, I do it again. I buy my cars, I buy my houses, I get married. 
I choose which video to watch. I choose which news outlet to watch. I choose, we have control. And all of a sudden today, we no longer have control. I can't even see the people I want to see. I don't even have control over how I can spend time with people. I've lost control of my life and I hate it. And maybe that's because I made too big of an idol out of myself. I thought that I was God and I thought that I could own it all. But in the story, we see that the tenants had a different plan. After God sends, or I'm sorry, the master sends his servants. Here's what happens starting in verse 35 through 38. It says, and the tenants took those servants and beat one killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. The tenants thought they had a better plan. They knew that God was sending his servants to collect the fruit. They wanted it all for themselves. They thought they could control it, and so they did everything they could. But what is this maybe an allusion to? I I believe that Jesus isn't just using metaphor here. Um, I believe that he's actually talking about specific servants uh, that he sent, while also using a metaphor to talk about um, the Israel as a whole. So who are these servants? I believe that historically, these servants were the prophets. So as you know, Israel uh, liked to kill their prophets when the prophets didn't uh, do or didn't say what they wanted them to say. Anytime a prophet brought a word against them. A lot of the times, uh, Israel as a nation would become upset, and uh, there were times where they beat and even killed these prophets. So these servants and, and the, the people that God was sending to Israel were the prophets. And what was the prophet's job? The prophet's job was to deliver the word of the Lord. Uh, They were the mouthpiece, if you will, of the Lord. And so a lot like our other parables where we talked about something being sown, what was it that was being sown was the word of God. These prophets would come, they would bring the word, they'd sow it, and then Israel, as it started to grow, would destroy it. Beat them, kill them, get rid of it. We don't like that fruit. Let's get rid of it. Or they'd take it, they'd eat it all for themselves, and they wouldn't let the other nations in on it. That happened a lot as well. So there was either a rejection of the fruit of God, or there was total consumption where they didn't want to relinquish any to anyone that wasn't like them. The tenants weren't willing to give up the word of God, the fruit of the word of God, to other people. And I think you are starting to understand and see where we're going with this. 
And then in the gospel narrative, we see that humanity rebelled against the word of God in the beginning. And in fact, it's probably why the nation of Israel had such a hard time obeying the word of God because Adam and Eve rejected the word of God. Do not eat of this fruit lest you die. And Eve was deceived. Adam let his guard down and they ate the fruit and brought death into the world. And in our current day application, I believe that the church itself can trust its structures, its polity, over the word of God, even to the point of rebellion, because it is so easy for us to build our idols. Adam and his wife give way to a serpent, yet another creation, set on ruining the plans of God. The serpent was. They eat of the forbidden tree, and the death enters into the world. It wreaks havoc on the land. The universe groaning in discomfort of that which was shattered. Adam and Eve were banished to die outside the garden. But in the same moment of judgment, in the same moment of banishment, God issues a promise. The king would come, and when he did, he would undo all that was broken and restore that which was rightfully his. The serpent would kill him, yes. And the serpent would kill him even by the hands of men. But the king would crush the power of the serpent, ending the curse of death that began in the garden. And so God sends his son to bring his people back into the garden. I want you to see that at the beginning, we were all one people. We were all created, imago Dei, in the image of God. And sin entered the world and shattered it. The mirror that once perfectly displayed the face of the king was broken, was shattered, and was dispersed across the earth. As many of you know, I work in coffee, and um, there's these set of guidelines uh, that we have to follow in coffee shops. And in fact, a lot of you guys uh, are reaping the benefit of those guidelines uh, right now, and some shops are probably realizing, dang, we've not been following these guidelines up until this point because a lot of the rules that have been set in place should have already been in place in eating establishments, by the way. If you didn't know that, um, like washing your hands, that's a normal everyday thing that you should be doing when preparing food and drink. Like, hey, every time you touch something with your glove, you got to take that glove off, wash your hands, then put a new set of gloves on. What? We want to be clean? Yes, we want to be clean. But those set of guidelines uh, display themselves as an organization called OSHA. And whenever anyone drops a piece of glass and it breaks, 
there's a, I believe, a 30-foot radius of potential glass shards. So if we were in a big empty room and we dropped it, that could go pretty far. Those pieces of glass could get real far. In fact, I was just watching the great British baking show last night, and in the semifinal, um, one of the, the, the participants dropped a piece of glass, and glass broke up from the ground into his pastry dishes. They had to throw all those pastry dishes out. All this to say, this is what sin has done to that which was supposed to mirror the image of God throughout all eternity. Sin came in and it shattered the glass. And now instead of seeing the perfect face of Jesus, we have been broken, spread out across the land, and we adhere to different names. We take on different personalities and um, races and gender and all of that. Sin has broken that which once was whole. But there was a promise in the garden, that Jesus, the son, that the seed of the woman would come and bring all those glasses that were once God's back to perfectly mirror his glory again. And we're dealing with that here in this next point, which is God sends his son. So the tenants thought they were going to get away with this. They were like, oh man, Servants are coming, they want our fruit, let's kill them. And then Jesus is like, or God is like, okay, as a master of this vineyard, I'm gonna send my son. They'll respect my son. They'll know that he is from me and they will respect him and they will give me what is rightfully mine, the fruit of the vine. And did they do that? No, of course not. So we're going to continue on, Matthew 21, verse 39, and we're going to read through to 42. It says, and they took him, these are the tenants, took the son and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? This is Jesus asking the people. And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. And let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. I want you to catch something here. God owns it all. God leases a vineyard to his tenants, and the tenants defy him. But does this stop God? No. He knew that by sending his son, they were going to kill his son. God knew that. In the garden, he promised it. This was not a surprise to God. God knew sin entered the world. My plan is to defeat that sin by sending the seed of the woman, which we know to be Jesus. And this is Jesus in the parable, really for the first time, starting to like make it clear to these people, I'm the son. I have come. 
And here's a really, really unique fact. Do you know where Jesus died? He died outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus knew, God knew, not only was he sent to die, but he tells us in this story, what did the tenants do to that, that son? It says that they threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus is foretelling not just his death, but exactly the way it was going to happen. He is declaring to them, I am the way. I have come to reap the sowing of the word of God. And you are going to throw me out of this city. And you are going to kill me. And you're going to think you won. But God knew that if they did this, if they threw the sun out of the walls of the city, if they killed the sun, it would not end his reign. It would not destroy that which was rightfully his, but that it would actually do exactly what he was trying to do from the beginning, which was to give the world his presence. You can do a whole big study in, in Genesis and, and the Old Testament, and you will quickly see that God's plan from the beginning was to create a people, give them a land, and to dwell with their people. This was his plan. This is the plan. Even for us today, that God would create a world, he would make a land, he would give that land to his people, and he would dwell with them. And the irony is, by kicking the sun out of the land, it broadened the borders of the land. It is no longer Jerusalem that carries and eats the fruit now. Historically, Israel rejects the cornerstone. We know this. We know that they are going to kill the sun. Jesus is predicting it here. And this rock of offense was sent so that that would happen. Did you catch that in the passage? It says, And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do? And then you pass down. And he quotes a scripture here. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is saying the killing of the son is exactly what God planned, and it would be marvelous. Turn with me quickly to Isaiah. We're going to go back to Isaiah, and this is um, chapter 8 now, verse 14. It says this, and he the Savior, Jesus, God, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This was the plan of God to be a rock of offense to Jerusalem. And it's not 
saying he condemns all of Jerusalem. Because obviously the disciples of Jesus, who went on to become the greatest um, missionaries in the world, were Jewish. So it, it wasn't just um, to condemn Jerusalem and give it to the world. No, it was, I need to condemn this structure, this thing that the people built, that they worshiped instead of me, this idol, Jerusalem, needs to get destroyed. So I'm gonna send my rock and I'm gonna destroy that idol so that those who are mine in the walls of the city would be able to be free of their chains and so that the world beyond those walls may hear of my good news and would come to me and be freed of their chains. You see, rock of offense is sent to destroy idols. Humanity kills the sun. You see, his blood is also on our hands. We can't forget that. Jesus wasn't killed just for Jerusalem. He was killed because we have our own idols. And we need that rock of offense to crush our idols. But he was sent so that humanity may be restored. Justice was poured out on Israel, yes, but it was for the blessing of all nations. And the application for us today is that this rock of offense is our cornerstone. God chooses how we should live that sounds offensive to everyone including myself this is what was breaking me over this week god is saying you are not worshiping me and i've brought you to a place where you literally have to be alone and you still will not turn your face to me what do i have to do this rock of offense broke me it said cast down your idols and worship the one true living God. And I hated it. We hate it. Because it's so offensive. But that rock that offends us is our cornerstone. It is the very thing that holds us together. We cannot lose that rock. And who is that rock? It is the God who owns it all. We're coming full circle. And I want you to see this. God is so gracious. He knew what these tenants were going to do. He knew that they were going to defile his vineyard. They were going to reject his servants. They were going to kill his son. Do you know what those tenants were able to do? They were able to tend to the garden, tend to the vineyard. They were able to crush those grapes. They were able to ferment those grapes. They were able to drink of the fruit of the vineyard. They were able to have a walled city of protection 
with a watchtower in the middle of it, they were able to flourish. And they missed it. All they had to do was enjoy the garden. All they had to do was enjoy the vineyard. All we have to do is enjoy the church that God has given us. He's in control of it. He's got our backs. But they don't do that, do they? No, they want to control the way the carpet looks. They want to control the way the walls look. They want to control the way the watchtower sits. They want to control what type of grapes are grown. They want to control the fruit of the word of God. And this is what Israel was trying to do. They were trying to keep the fruit to themselves. They wanted to control the fruit. And I'm here to tell you today that there may be people out there that because of the lens of your idol that you have in your own mind, you think don't deserve the fruit of the word of God. And that breaks God's heart. He sent Jesus to die to break down the idol of nationalistic pride, of big R religion, so that the gospel, the, the, the fruit of the word of God would grow in people that they didn't want. Let that sink in. We get to live in this vineyard. And it offers life to us. And we killed the sun. And in so doing, God created the way he would rebuild his vineyard. And I want you to be warned here. Those idols, whatever they may be, whether it's the way you think church is supposed to be done all the time, whether it's skin color, whether it's your own pride, whether it's simple things like I mentioned before, owning your house, having a family, those idols have to be crushed by the rock of offense now. And the reason why they have to be crushed now is because if they are not crushed now, they will be crushed later. And the later crushing is eternity of pain and torment and separation from the love of God and the absorption of the 100% wrath of God. Because that rock that died to crush those idols was his own son who was eternal and accepted the wrath poured out for eternity for those, as John 3.16 says, who would believe. So believe now, because if you don't believe now, you will believe later and it'll be too late. So that rock of offense is coming. Let it crush you now or it'll crush you later. Daniel 2, 34 is where we see this crushing. And Jesus alludes to it. It says, as you looked, 
a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. This was the idol of the king Nebuchadnezzar. Jesus references the crushing of an idol in this passage to show the people you have built an idol and I have come to crush it. We have to understand that. Jesus knows that he's about to die. In fact, this is happening after his triumphal entry, so we're actually a week ahead. But he knows that this is going to happen, and he knows that it's a good thing. Because when that idol gets destroyed, freedom for the world. So I want to just leave you with some hope. I know we, we hit it hard this morning. But Peter also quotes Isaiah 8.14 in 1 Peter 2.8. And it echoes what Jesus says in Matthew 21 through 43. If you want to turn there as I conclude this morning, this is what I want to leave you with. For I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. But this is the hope today. The kingdom of God is yours. God has given this to you. Historically, Israel failed. Historically, humanity failed. We have been given this time, this season, to understand that God owns it all. That we are his tenants and that his fruit is for the world. Let's let that rock crush our idols today. Make us into something new. Because this is the hope of the vineyard. Come, eat, marvel at its beauty. Marvel at the God of the vineyard. Because he is the God of the garden. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word. I pray that we would let this sink in that we would understand that we need the God who owns it all, that we need to set aside our pride, that we need to set aside our idols and realize that you've got a plan and it is so much better than any plan we could ever think of. And in our failed attempts to hoard that which is good, you give freely to the world. God, send this rock this morning to crush our idols, open our eyes, remove our hearts of stone, and give us a heart of flesh that is willing to submit to your way because your way gives life forever. Lord, thank you that you would show us grace in this time to point out your word to us. Thank you. We worship you this morning. We praise you. 
we give you all the glory and honor. And as we sing one last song this morning, God, I ask, would you make us into something new for the glory of your name forever and ever? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Life Center Church Podcast. For more content, visit our website at lifecenteredchurch.com.